Welcome to the HR Uprising podcast. This podcast series explores HR hot topics and challenges through conversations with relevant experts and real-life HR learning and OD professionals. The HR Uprising is about learning through collaboration and evidence-based action. We want colleagues to have the confidence and skills to rise up through their organizations by delivering real, lasting business value. Now, introducing your host, chartered psychologist, experienced change agent, entrepreneur, speaker, and coach, Lucinda Carney. Hi there, and welcome to the fourth in our series of podcasts from the HR Uprising. My name's Lucinda Carney, and I'm your host. And today's topic is what really drives performance anyway? Just a quick shout out and thank you to those of you who've been in touch, who've been telling your colleagues, been downloading, subscribing, and generally giving feedback. We really, really appreciate it. Please do keep it coming. So this week, I'm really going to get stuck into this subject because I've got plenty to say and I know we all don't have lots of time, so I don't want to make the podcast overlong. But it's something which is topical, maybe overly topical. I mean, let's hear it. We've all had those headlines, haven't we? The appraisal is dead. Long live the catch up. You know, our annual performance reviews as dead as the dinosaurs. We've heard that Deloitte and Adobe and Microsoft and Apple and any other aspirational organisation has ditched the appraisal. But have they really? Have they really? Is it working? This is such a overhyped topic, in my opinion. And the purpose of this podcast is to cut through the hype to make sure that all of us as HR professionals understand what the evidence is around what drives high performance then we can use that to apply that in our organisations. So as you know, those of you who tuned in last week, we were talking about demystifying OD. So part of OD is about strategic alignment between people interventions and delivering organisational value. To be honest, you could say that's exactly what performance management should be about. It's a people management process that should be aligned with the needs of the organisation and delivering business value. However, The way in which it's being carried out in many, many circumstances means that it has no quality when it's become a once year appraisal. And to be honest, that's just common sense. It's hardly surprising that if you make everything culminate in a three hour end of year epic, where frankly, everyone's lost their will to live by the end of it, of course, it's not going to be effective. However, is ditching it as in taking it out of the window altogether, is that really going to result in quality year-round conversations. The managers in your organisation, unless things have changed dramatically since I was in the corporate world 10 years ago, which I'm pretty sure they haven't, they're not going to say, oh, great, they've ditched the appraisal, therefore I'm going to create new habits and chat to my people all year round and give them quality feedback. It just isn't going to happen like that. You still need to nudge people. You still need to give them processes. And you can hear I'm a bit get a bit aerated about this one. For me, what I think we should do is go back to what is the evidence of what drives high performance. Let's not get taken in by the headlines and let's make sure that we are embedding evidence-based performance management practice within the businesses and organisations that we lead. So with that in mind, I'm going to use the basis of this podcast as a research review that uh, we had carried out for us when um, within Actus. So we actually commissioned psychologist Dr. Nuno de Camera to carry out this for us. If anyone wants to download it, I will put the link. And I say that because it is a research uh, piece. So there are lots and lots of references in it that wouldn't come over on the podcast. So I will 
share the key findings, but if you want to know where they come from and the studies that they refer to, all of those are in the white paper that you can download. Okay, so in a nutshell, what the evidence actually shows is that there are eight key evidence-based practices that will increase employee performance in your organization. Now, there is a high level of common sense here. Uh, I don't think anything I'm gonna share with you is going to be surprising, but it's worth you thinking about whether or not it's embedded and actually happening. So we can all know that these things that we're gonna go through are the right things to do, but are they actually happening? As Stephen Covey said, common sense is not always common practice, or it's not even that common. So what are the eight evidence-based practices uh, that there's good evidence for that you should look to embed in your organization if you want to deliver good performance management or good employee performance and drive high performance? I'm going to summarise them quickly so that you can know where I'm going with this. I know some people like some structure. So the first one's goal setting, no surprise there. The second one is a strategic alignment. The third one is coaching and development in terms of the manager's style. The fourth one is feedback and recognition. The fifth one is communication and transparency. And I think that's an interesting one for us to reflect on whether that's really happening in our organisations. Adding on to that, we've got the climate of performance, uh, sorry, climate of trust. Are we actually driving a climate of trust? And then we've also got rewarding performance, which is also something that you might find to be a little bit contentious. And then the final one, which will be perhaps no surprise, is about training, but not just training people. It's actually about trained managers. So those are the eight points where there's a lot of evidence out there about high impact practices that will actually correlate with improved performance and I think that's a really great place for us to start when we're looking at changing our performance management process if you want to move away from once a year is it enough just to ditch the appraisal and say right get on with it or do we need to put a structure of some description in there in place uh, in order to make it work okay so let's start with goal setting well Actually, goal setting and feedback, which you heard me mention earlier, are probably the best researched items out there in terms of what drives high performance. And I, I think if you think about it, even in your personal life, if you went and did some personal, um, whether you wanted to lose weight, they'd set a goal. Uh, if you were working on some personal development, you'd set a goal. So why is it so common for us not to set goals with people in the workplace? It's really bizarre. One classic issue, which if we're going to challenge the, uh, you know, the leaders in our organisation, is quite often no one actually understands what the overall business goals are. And actually, if I link to strategic alignment, which is the second evidence-based practice, these two sit together very, very um, evidently. So if I was an HR professional and I'm aware that at the start of the year, if you're lucky, the board know what's expected, but no one gets any performance targets cascaded until month three or four, then I would try and change that. And I did do that in the organisation I worked for. I remember that literally people would complain about the fact that they didn't get their targets until three or four months into the year, by which time, you know, you can't, well, you've only got eight months left to hit it. Uh, that we actually got the business planning process to start earlier in the year, in future years, and the board to buy into the fact that if people didn't know what was expected of them early enough, how on earth could they achieve it? So you can see that a key aspect of high performance is having people understand what's expected of them and ideally align it strategically. I am going to mention the acronym SMART in there because actually 
I'm quite a fan of that because it links to the evidence-based practice. So it is about people understanding specifically what's expected of them, if you think of the S, but there's also an S for me, which is stretching. So goal setting theory shows that a goal that is seen as stretching but achievable is actually more motivational to somebody than a goal that's easy. So setting goals is key. Making sure that they are relevant is the R that I use. Often if you went down smart, um, I would say specific stretching, uh, measurable, I then say achievable and agreed. So where someone's made a commitment to it. So the manager and the individual have discussed that goal. They've agreed that it's stretching but achievable. So there's agreement. It's not just being imposed on someone. R, quite often I hear people say realistic. Well, that's fine, but that's also achievable. So relevant is the R for me that's key here. And that's about strategic relevance. So we're covering out through that. And obviously T for timed is the final one. In terms of the first two evidence-based practices, we're talking about goal setting and strategic alignment, making sure that I can see how my goals are strategically aligned. It gives me the why of why I'm doing this. So are they strategically aligned with the business goals? Are they strategically aligned with my career aspirations? Both of those would give me a why to do it and a motivation. I need to be clear on what's expected and they need to be agreed. That is such total common sense, but really not that common. And actually, I would say if you wanted to ditch the annual appraisal and get people just focusing on agreeing goals and giving feedback against them, then brilliant. But the reality is that is not what managers are used to doing. And you're going to need to put some sort of structure in place and, of course, some training that's going to help those managers learn those new behaviours. Because after all, if you're trying to move towards continuous conversations, we have got people in the workplace who are busier than they've ever been. They've got more distractions than they've ever had. And we know that people management as a tool or a, a method, um, a profession, isn't necessarily valued. You have got hordes of people managers in businesses today who frankly, don't give a damn about people management. They were the best engineer or they were the best salesperson or they were the best project manager. They are not necessarily passionate about people. In fact, there's too few people managers, in my opinion, who lack the people gene, but that's a completely different angle. So to my mind, we have to help managers realise how important it is to manage people well and give them the tools and methods to do that. And just saying, I'm going to ditch the appraisal is not going to do that. People will go backwards. They'll, be, they'll just do nothing. That's my opinion. So, okay, we've talked about our first two evidence-based practices. The next one is about the style of uh, discussion. And again, coaching style of management. I, nothing's really new here. This is about the manager asking questions, understanding what the individual wants, where they want to go, what do they think they can achieve. Now, to my mind, you cannot set a smart objective and agree it without having a coaching style, using open questions. So have you got managers who are able to coach? And actually, I was I was at a CIPD roundtable yesterday, and it was quite interesting because one of the guys said that they started teaching coaching skills to the, the sort of new forthcoming talent. And this talent, as they taught them how to coach, would come out of the coaching program and say, wow, I never thought that's what coaching was like. And I do think back to my experience where managers go, oh, I'm going to go and coach them how to do this. And I thought, hmm, you're going to coach them how to do this. That really sounds like coaching, doesn't it? I don't think 
coach sounds the same as coaching where you're asking questions. I felt that there were quite a lot of quite autocratic managers, certainly in the 90s, who went on a coaching course or thought they knew how to coach and basically they just went and told people how to do things and they called it coaching. In this context, we are saying much more true coaching where you're helping people consider where they want to develop and you're empowering them to make decisions for themselves. And you can see, we know, again, if you someone tells you you've got to achieve something, as opposed to when you say, well, what do I want to achieve? That is all part of the buy-in. And for people to perform, it therefore makes sense. If I buy into that and I feel that I can develop as a result of that coaching as well, so the coaching might be allowing you to think something through for yourself, then you can see how people are going to perform better. But again, we use this term coaching. You may have managers out there who think they're coaching, but actually they're not. Feedback and recognition. This is my fourth evidence-based practice. Now, the evidence we had, and this was done on a research review from a couple of years ago, and I'm aware that there was uh, an article in the Harvard Business Review this year recently about coaching, uh, sorry, about feedback and different aspects of feedback. I'm not sure they contradicted it, but fundamentally, this was one of the most powerful things. And they said that basically researchers couldn't emphasise enough the importance of managers going beyond the formal, as in once or twice a year appraisal, and giving ongoing feedback to employees throughout the year. So that is the key thing that you can get people to do. Now, there is an emphasis here on recognition, as in positive feedback. That too makes sense. I've done some reading on neuroscience and it says that really when we receive feedback, it engenders our fight or flight response. So when if you said, oh, can I give you some feedback? I'm going to give you some feedback. Instantly, how do we feel? You know, you get the fear response, don't we? And I think one of the best ways of conditioning us not to be fearful is about giving people specific quality, positive feedback. It's about building trust, isn't it? If they realise you're not always there to shoot them down and actually they, you'll catch people doing things right, then, and again, that's a classic one minute manager adage from 20, 30 years ago, that book, catch people doing things right. So it's recognising good performance. And I think you could argue that almost on a ratio of five to one. If you need to get people to listen to you when you need to tell them how to do things differently, then you need to also tell them when they're doing things well. Let's go back to small children, you know, reward charts. I'm not saying we have to have star charts, but you know, might work, might work in, in the workplace. But are we just critical? Or is there just a feedback vacuum? I think that's more often the case because people just almost they're so busy again. We're all doing, 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 and we take for granted what people do well without stopping and pausing and going, actually, that was really helpful when you gave me that report. You saved me two hours by having, putting that report from Excel and put some commentary around it uh, for me. So thank you so much for doing that. So much better than just going, oh, great job. Well, great job for what? What did I do? It's nice, but not effective. So specific positive feedback is a great starting point because then it leaves it open for you also to be able to give specific developmental feedback. That said, you've got to have courage to do it and you've got to create the time because if I don't enjoy giving people developmental feedback, but I think if you set that climate up where you're talking to people regularly, you can go in and approach things and find a way of doing it. It's about creating the ongoing climate. So we talked about goal setting, strategic alignment, coaching and development, and feeding and recognition. So we're now halfway through the key evidence-based practices around what drives high performance.
Now, the rest of them become, those are perhaps, I suppose, ones which are very much about how the manager operates. The following four are maybe a bit more organisational. Uh, obviously, they do affect the manager too. So the first one is having a climate of communication and transparency. So this is a wider climate of it. People should not be going to an appraisal and get a surprise. So, and that links back, they should be having ongoing conversations. You shouldn't do a 360 feedback and have a surprise. I was talking about that in one of our earlier podcasts. And my fear with the ditch appraisal brigade is that actually there's a whole lot of ratings because lots of these firms still have to work out how to distribute reward. And actually rewarding performance is something that has evidence aligned against it. So if you take away any of the formal processes, how on earth are you going to allocate reward fairly? I've thrown out the appraisal. Well, the likelihood is that is going to occur almost as badly as it used to do in lots of places where it's behind closed doors. And, um, you know, that just creates suspicion. And, and, and it's also based on subjective evidence. So I question, you know, if you're in an organisation where you've got some sort of reward based system, I believe that you still do need some form of culmination of that where both parties are involved and there is a transparent, fair process. Now, it doesn't mean that we like the outcome of it, but we respect the fact that that process is well managed and it's fair. So, for example, if there is ratings, then a calibration process exists. Ideally, I've seen, where I've seen it work, I know some people say the manager doesn't discuss the rating it and goes off to the darkened room and comes back and you are told your rating or the manager just fires it out to you through your software and it lands. Ideally, I would say a manager should talk to you about the performance rating if there is going to be one. They should say this is indicative. It may change, but this is why I think you're this. It then goes to calibration and then it comes back. And if it's changed, the manager should sit down and be able to talk about why it's changed. That would be transparent and fair and people would know what to expect. And that would build a climate of trust, which is our next evidence based practice. If people don't trust the overall processes, then they'll become cynical. They'll go through the motions. But actually, the climate of trust that's most important is that that is driven by the manager. So if the manager comes back and says, oh, I'm really sorry, I, I wanted to rate you a, a four, but actually, no, it got talked down to three. If they don't believe in, in you or if you say, oh, that's, I really value your time or uh, one-to-ones, but then I'm permanently late for them, so I break that contract, then I'm not setting up a climate of trust with my employee. And it's really important to have that if you want high performance. So it's almost, you could go through the motions if you like, you could do your feedback, you could set your goals, but if you are not congruent, and you don't create a climate of trust as a line manager, then actually a lot of that work could be destroyed. Equally, if you're not transparent and they, they're suspicious about the processes, then it just may not work. I mentioned rewarding performance earlier, and I know not everyone can do that. I mean, I work with loads of public sector organisations where actually reward, there's no way you're going to do performance-related pay. In fact, um, slightly frustratingly, I do see that there is a, a culture to a certain extent where you don't get an increment unless you've performed, which for me, I don't know there's evidence for this, but intuitively, I feel that's almost motivating non-behaviour. Uh, it's quite it's about the most negative way you can introduce performance-related pay, but that's just my opinion. But rewarding performance, there is evidence that people have seen that, that organisations should have a greater link between performance and reward. And I would 
put out to you that reward doesn't have to be monetary. So reward could be a day's holiday. Reward could be going on a development programme. Reward could be being on an employee panel to take part in shaping the new culture. There are many ways in which people can be rewarded. And actually, what's more important is understanding what motivates them. Some people may not be motivated by money. In fact, most people actually aren't. When you dig below it, it's what it does for them. So reward, there is evidence to say that linking performance with monetary reward is valuable. In fact, there is also evidence to say that uh, there should be a link between poor performance and lack of reward. And you can look up those and see what you make of that. People, I think this is about people understanding or feeling that it's, again, it's trusting that the system is fair, the process is fair. And then this leads me on to my final point or the final point of evidence. It's about training, but it's not training people. I think there is something about people being developed. It's about having trained managers. Now, I know we've got listeners to this podcast all over the world, but in the UK, you know, our, our, the skills of our managers are are low and the amount of time there's evidence to see that we are investing less in training. And again, I've been in conversations with L&D professionals recently where they are struggling to get managers to attend training. Well, why is this? And again, you hear me say this a lot. I wonder if it is because they don't get the why. Is your business placing importance on people management? Is the activity of a people manager something which is recognised and acknowledged as being important? One of the businesses I worked with that did this really well basically stated that if you were a people manager, let's say with more than three or four people reporting into you, they set the expectation that you should be spending a minimum of 20% of your time on people management activities. They also went further and they they did obviously train the managers in these. They helped them understand why it was important. It was about delivering engagement and uh, retaining staff and developing staff and lots of good stuff. So managers bought into that, but they made this harder for them to avoid if they didn't have the people gene, basically, because they came up with a, a manager charter. And having that manager charter, there were 10 behaviours that were expected. And interestingly, this is... 15, nearly 20 years ago, what they said were these managers needed to do one-to-ones monthly. Oh, what's that? Talk to your people 12 times a year. Wow. Isn't that continuous conversations? But they knew that just saying, oh, have regular feedback wouldn't get you anywhere. So they actually put in key structured ways of talking to people and they set guidelines and they made that a performance objective for every single people manager in the organisation and that transformed the way people were working and actually they did deliver some absolutely outstanding results for a couple of years and I say for a couple of years because they were then sold so I'm not saying they stopped them but it did seem to directly prove through. Now I'm telling you about trained managers because that's what the objective evidence said. My example here was about a real example about how how an organisation put that into practice and This perhaps is a good place to start to wrap up the podcast. Putting this into practice, the reason that people are saying appraisal's dead is, as I started at the the beginning, is that appraisal in its old form, where literally a manager would sit down once a year and they would talk about, have you achieved your objectives? Have you achieved your behaviours? Have you done any compliance-led training? Uh, 
you name it, you've had and you've maybe gone through every single objective in detail. And then you go, oh, oh, and career aspirations. Yeah, what do you want to do with your life? Now, you might have had a really tough conversation wrangling over whether or not you were able to demonstrate strategic thinking or whether or not you were a four or a three on one of your performance objectives. And then you're supposed to segue naturally into a lovely coaching conversation about where you want to go with your life. It doesn't make sense to me because what you're doing is you are imposing different types of conversation into one meeting. And to be honest, it would be a very long meeting if you were to cover everything well. And I don't think you can cover all those things well in that one conversation. So going back to the business example that I was talking about, what they did was they did say you had to have 12 one-to-ones, but they had also quarterly themes. So you obviously focused on performance at, let's say if you visualize it as a clock, because there's 12 numbers on it, at 12 o'clock and six o'clock, it was about performance. So are you performing against your objectives, setting objectives? It might be rating performance, and it might also be talking about competencies. Are you uh, performing against the behaviors? And then if you're visualizing the clock at three o'clock, they would look at development. Now, I really like this idea of looking at development earlier in the year. And the reason I like this so much is because it makes sense that if I've just set an objective and I don't know if I'm going to achieve it or not, isn't that the time for me to get some development? So they set the development then, you'd have a further check-in at the half year point, and then we'd start talking about career aspirations or talent management at the nine o'clock, so towards the end of the year, because you'd know if that person was on track to perform. And if they're on track to perform, then they might be on track to go up the ladder in a career way. So that just seemed like a really logical way of dividing the year into four chunks, which would mean that you don't have to have a super long appraisal and you can put a different hat on as a manager at those different times of year. And then to my mind, in between those, we should be having one-to-ones where we're having those regular conversations. So hopefully that makes sense. I'm sure it does make sense a lot to you, but hopefully it's quite logical and something you can refer back to. I'll just summarise the eight evidence-based practices before I close the podcast. And I'll say, if you want to read through the research review, you can download it and we'll put the link on the show notes. So the key evidence-based practices that you should put into place if you want to drive high performance is goal setting, strategic alignment, having a coaching style for managers, embedding a culture of feedback and recognition, making it positive, communication, transparency, making sure the culture there is transparent, which builds a climate of trust. Think about whether performance should be rewarded, if there is a way of doing that in a trustworthy, consistent way, and it doesn't have to be just money. And don't forget, trained managers, finding a way for your managers to be trained, but in order to do that, you may need to raise the bar in terms of how people management activities are viewed and valued in your organisation. So that's it. That's our thinking for this week on what really drives performance and evidence-based performance management. My name's Lucinda Carney. Please do hook up with me on social media, LinkedIn, Twitter. I'd love to hear from you. And of course, send in your suggestions and ideas. So you've been listening to the HR Uprising podcast. Thanks so much. 
Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the HR Uprising podcast. You can access more information, including resources or links mentioned in the show at our website, www.hruprising.com. Also, you might want to join our LinkedIn community or tweet to us at HR Uprising. We'd love to hear from you.